This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. For a lot of us, the generation that we're born into becomes an important part of our identity. A lot of us believe that that generational identity can tell people something about us, and we generalize a lot of our own beliefs and experiences, thinking that they also apply to other members of our generation. Talking about generational differences can be fun, and it has led to some of the funniest internet memes out there. But according to Bobby Duffy, and he does have a boatload of research to back this up, most of what we believe about generational identity and differences is wrong. He is a professor of public policy and director of the Policy Institute at King's College London and the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. He is on the line with me now from London. Hello, Bobby. Hi there. Hi. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And first, let's talk about our fascination with generations, because we are kind of obsessed with it, aren't we? We are. I mean, there's an incredible amount of coverage of generation, supposed generational differences, um, an unending wave of mostly stereotypes, myths, and cliches about um, generations, which is in many ways a real shame because generational difference in thinking is a really big idea, but it has been horribly corrupted by these stereotypes and myths that mislead us um, and, and often point us in the wrong direction and and uh, make us miss the really big changes that we've seen between generations. What made you want to study generations and, and really dig into this data? I suppose it was that unending wave of uh, uh, headlines and bad research that you would see that would be trying to sum up whole generations, vast swathes of people in one or two adjectives. So things like um, saying that millennials were particularly materialistic. Um, millennials seem to get the brunt of a lot of the initial uh, stereotyping of generations. It's partly because they came of age just as uh, the internet and social media was taking off. So it was very easy to share these memes, <clears throat> like you say, often right. quite funny, but an awful lot of them accusing generation uh, millennials of being the me, me, me generation or particularly uh, materialistic. Well, I, I work with a lot of millennials. I myself am a Gen Xer, and I have on a number of occasions said, hey, it's okay. Our generation was so deeply maligned. We were the slacker generation. I mean, we were everything was wrong with us. I mean, this this trend of beating up on the youngest generation is a time-honored tradition. No, it is. Absolutely. So you can trace it all the way back to Socrates. Socrates... <laughs> had a very long diatribe against the young people of his day, who he said were lazy, uh, showed no manners or respect for older people, were only interested in luxury. And you can more or less transfer that generation after generation. We always think the latest generation of young people are the worst ever, and they are wrong and weird. And that's kind of healthy for societies in some ways. We should we should be slightly perturbed by the younger generation coming through because they will be different from us. They, they won't be, <clears throat> as sociologists would say, they won't be configured to the values and norms of society that we grew up with. And that helps keep society fresh. So our, our kind of constant denigration of youth is actually a sign that society is moving forward and changing. <laughs> Okay. And uh, you and I are both members of yes. Gen X, which you do frequently point out throughout the book is basically yes. the forgotten generation. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, we're unfortunately, we're like the forgotten middle child between these two cultural and demographic behemoths of baby boomers and millennials, and people don't talk about us very much. And it's a sort of interesting, um, we kind of, uh, for me, slightly ironic that I spent so long studying generations when no one ever mentioned us. We got the cool name from Douglas Copeland's book, but then people don't talk about us uh, very much. And it's quite it's quite useful in some ways because we are a sort of bridging generation between millennials and baby boomers. We've got characteristics that you can see in both. We didn't quite make it as rich as baby boomers on average, um, but we're quite we're more embedded in the technological change uh, than baby boomers were, and a bit closer to millennials on on those types of things. So we're kind of a good place to look in both directions, if you see what I mean. Well, let's talk a little bit about the generations that we will be focusing on. And you have broken down really the greatest generation and the silent generation into one category, pre-war mm. generations, because yeah. there aren't all that many of them left. Exactly. I mean, is that, that's the reason that you kind of lump them together. Um, let's talk about the baby boomer generation because it mm. is huge. And also by generational standards, it's also a long generation. There, there are what about 20 years that people could be born into the boomer generation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's, there's always some discussion and disagreement about exactly where do you put the cutoffs between different generations. And in some ways that doesn't matter hugely exactly where you put it. Uh, the cutoffs is going to be uh, people near the edge are going to be nearer, closer to people on the other side of the divide than they are to people further up. Within yeah, there's not a own... brick wall there. <laughs> it's not a brick wall. You've got to view these as indications. And that's one of the, you know, one of the points about how we should treat this analysis generally is it's about these broad shifts rather than being very precise. And whether you're in one or the other, uh, doesn't really matter too much. It's trying to get that sense of change. But yes, you're right. A 20 year gap, uh, a 20 year range for baby boomers compared to more like 14 years for Gen X. And it, baby boomers are the only one out of all the generational labels that we use that is related in some way, at least to a demographic reality. There was a baby boom where more there were more births uh, per year. <clears throat> and that gave that generation this greater both uh, economic weight and political weight. There's more of them in those age groups um, and more of them vote. And that does have an impact. So this is a, a demographic reality behind baby boomers. Well, and, and baby boomers are unique also because there really is kind of a dividing line between them and the generation that came before because of World War II. There were just fewer children born during the war, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So you've got this... Uh, demographic reality and big world events um, shaping that transition from those pre-war generations into baby boomers. And then after that, it becomes much fuzzier and a much more culturally driven about where do baby boomers end, where does Gen X begin, and then how does Gen X bleed into uh, millennials. So, yeah, so you can see fairly clear demarcations in um, the pre-war generations of silent and greatest and then baby boomers. And then it gets a bit more about what's the cultural differences between these groups. Well, and, and it's also interesting to me because my parents are boomers, at least I would say culturally boomers. My dad just barely falls into that silent generation because his father couldn't go to war. Um, but the, you know, we are in Gen X, we are the children of baby boomers, but a lot mm -hmm. of millennials also are the children of baby boomers. So that feels mm -hmm. like that muddies the waters. It does. I mean, I, <clears throat> it's interesting the extent to which your parental upbringing 
shapes you versus what's going on in society at the time. Because I think the, as much as anything, we've, we've got a, a shift from that sense of uh, familial structures, family structures, driving uh, generations, to much more about what's going on in society, whether that's in culture, uh, technology, or the economy. And I think when you when you start to get to these later generations, yes, how what generation your parents were and how they brought you up, the values and uh, behaviors that that instilled in you is an important part of it, but also what's happening in society more generally um, is an important factor too, particularly you know, when you start to define generation, generation X, our generation, uh, around those types of cultural things around slacker uh, type mentalities or thinking there's more to life than work, all of those types of things come, come into the fore much more. Uh, but you're right that the parental attitude is also a really important aspect in uh, how generations are formed. Because fundamental to uh, generational thinking is that we are more malleable in our late teens and early 20s when we're forming our adult identities. That sticks with us longer. So what's happening uh, around the time you're going through those years of your life is a bigger shaping factor for you than what happens later. Let's talk about uh, the millennials and, and sort of as time goes on, those lines of demarcation around where a generation sits become a little bit clearer, it feels. Mm. But but right now, what do we think of as the millennial generation? Yeah, it's um, classically it's 1980 to 1995 or 1996, that type of uh, range. Um, so coming into the 80s and then into the 90s. And there is a bit of a natural kind of split within millennials early and later millennials which is related to technology because you do have uh, fairly different characteristics and views particularly around technology issues comparing earlier and later millennials but effectively who was properly digitally native and who has uh, learned to get used to this new technology and then there's Gen Z. That's the generation that I'm raising in my mm. household. And where where do they fit? Yeah, it's basically uh, from 1996 uh, up till 2011 or 2012. That sort of, that sort of range. Again, the end point of that not quite as well defined as yet. Um, people are already moving on to talking about Generation Alpha as the next generation, but. Again, that that is we've got some time and to work that out, particularly with such a, a generation shaping event as COVID and right. how that is going to change the demarcations between generations. Well, and I, I was just going to say, I mean, there are very there are so many significant events that have shaped mm -hmm. us over time, and we will talk more about that later on. But you know, obviously, the Great Depression and World War II, and before that, yeah. World War One and Vietnam. You know, these are are huge, huge events that really shaped the people who came of age during those times, and. The pandemic feels like another one of those events. This is global. This is huge. It's changed the way everybody lives. So the repercussions of this are going to last a long time. Absolutely. I mean, this as a person who's just been studying generations for years, a decade, um, uh, to have a what is truly a generation-defining event happen just as you're, you're uh, publishing this book was, uh, was a really interesting experience because it did, it did make me look back to the sociologists and philosophers who talked about generations in the past and, and really the big explosion of interest in how do generations get formed, what do they mean, 
was following in the run-up and then following the First World War um, because that was seen as such a traumatic event and such experienced so differently by young and old that it was it was uh, it was seen to form a completely different worldview and mindset. And I think you're right. We've got something potentially similar going on with COVID uh, right now. All right. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Bobby Duffy. He is the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. We'll find out more about that in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe, and I'm talking with Bobby Duffy, author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. And uh, Bobby, before the break, we were kind of defining all of these different generations, and everybody knows which generation they belong to, whether they agree with that or not. I, I know some Gen X friends who would tell me that they are liminal millennials. That sounds really fancy. So, <laughs> okay, whatever. But let's let's talk about uh, the data that that you have been digging into because you break down a lot of different aspects of our culture, society, our lives by generation. What made you want to look at the data in that way? It was because of this mix of uh, myths and stereotypes that had been published that were mixed up with really big, significant changes in generational experiences where when you were born has had a big impact on your life. So you do, you look at economic uh, uh, circumstances that have changed and utterly altered the life course for uh, generations, particularly Generation X and then millennials um, around how the the economy changed in the run-up to the housing boom and bust and the financial crisis. So there's these really big generational stories about how we've changed and our experience has been different depending on when we were born, uh, mixed up with utter nonsense about <laughs> generations being materialistic or lazy, um, having a lazy <laughs> or, and then all sorts of great cliches around millennials killing the napkin industry or killing the wine cork industry. Or, or killing, I mean, it was more, more serious accusations like killing marriage, for example. Killing marriage, yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> uh, all, uh, you could fill a whole conversation with things millennials are supposed to have killed. And it's very distracting from really important realities. And it is a little bit reflective of the tragedy of generations is a, a really big sociological and philosophical idea that has been uh, corrupted, really. Um, so that was the motivation is let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's try to understand what's real and what isn't in all these claims and counterclaims. All right. And there's there are a lot of graphs in your book. There's a mm. lot of statistical information. And so we're going to get a little nerdy and talk about some of the different patterns that you see. But I think it's really instructive to talk really about the, the three different kinds of patterns that you see. And and one of them is period effects. So tell me what those are and what that means. Yeah, basically, all change in society can be summed up in terms of these three effects. So period effects are where 
something happens and we are all affected to some degree. So classically, that would be a big event like a financial crash or a pandemic. Um, it affects us differently, but it affects society as a whole. It can also be like slow cultural changes that we're all affected by, say, in our attitudes to homosexuality or to women's role in society, those types of things. So that's that's one type of effect, and it's really, really important um, in terms of shaping um, societies, as we can understand, having lived through COVID. But you also have uh, life cycle effects where we change as we age, that is, uh, as we go through different life stages in particular of leaving home, getting married, having kids, getting jobs, retiring. They are all related to a worldview and change our attitudes and uh, behaviors. And then the third effect is these cohort effects where a generation is different from other generations and it stays different. And that's because it was brought up in a different sort of period and that shaped its uh, attitudes or behaviors. And really it's the interaction between those three things that explain um, all types of change in society. And the job of the book is not to prove or disprove that something is a cohort or generation effect. It's just to look at how those three effects interact and explain how change happens overall. Well, and I, I found it to be fascinating. And, and also there's this little bit of tension every time you look at a new graph and look for your line, looking for <sighs> the Gen X line. You know, sometimes yes. I'm like, yes, I see myself there. And then sometimes I was disappointed in my generation <sighs> or surprised by my generation. So there's even though we're throwing out a lot of these stereotypes and, and the things that, that we sort of entertain ourselves with, there is a lot of fun to be had, I would say, and, and enlightenment to be had by looking mm. at, at these generational differences. And one of the places you start is with our our cultural idea, and, and you talk both about the United States and Britain and other countries as well, but mm. particularly you focus on, on our two cultures, um, yeah. but our ideas about progress, because not only do we want each generation to do better than the generation that came before, we also expect that. And that pattern held for quite a while, right? Yeah, it's one of the big uh, motivations, I think, as, as as humans, is that you want your your offspring to do at least as well as you, certainly not slip back, and ideally you want them to be doing better. It's kind of very fundamental to us that you don't want to see things slide backwards. You want to see progress for, for your kids. And that really was the case and experience in most of the post-war period. Obviously, there's been ups and downs, but we had this general sense of yes uh, kids are going to do better than their parents um, up until the late 1990s uh, early 2000s and but since then we've had this sense of reversal in developed countries developed markets uh, particularly where you actually get many more people twice as many people saying things are going to get worse for their kids than it was for their parents uh, rather than better and that's really important I think because of that that motivation that people have to want that at a personal level, but it also has economic and uh, political consequences. Because if you feel that uh, things are sliding back and that your kids can't expect better than you had, that's very much tied to a loss of faith in the system overall. What's the point of democracy? What's the point of the economic system if we can't actually do better for our kids than we did for ourselves? We've, got, we've had this very strong sense of expectation of progress uh, post-war, which is uh, is lived up 
um, to those expectations a, a lot of the time and it is not doing so much now. So it has broader political implications, I think, and helps explain some of the dissatisfaction that people are seeing with the political systems, economic systems now, because we've got that sense of decline. Um, and it becomes very personal when it becomes, uh, it's my kids that are going to be affected by that. Well, and, and that also is significant socially as well, because we are seeing people choose to have fewer children mm. and children less often, at least in a particular social strata that is not universal. But uh, that's one of the things that millennials are supposed to have killed is, is, yes. Yes. is parenthood, right? Um, yes. but, but that is a trend. We see birth rates declining. And part of that is because of that pessimism about the future? Well, I mean, actually, this, this, the blaming on millennials and then Gen Z for declining birth rates is one of those generational myths about um, uh, blaming the latest, youngest generation, because the actual the de decline in fertility rates started way before that with the end of baby boomers and, and Gen X. And they've been not they've been going down, but going down very slowly since uh, those bigger drops. So this is we're more of becoming it's more at the, that we're at the end towards the end of a long trend where fertility rates have gone down for all sorts of reasons, you know, very positive reasons around increased education Birth um, among population. Yes. And then greater control that people have over their uh, fertility, greater focus on careers and progression among women. All of all of those types of things are uh, more about you know, increased choice for for people. So it's a, it's a positive of that. But you, but you're right; it does create this societal challenge of an aging society with fewer people coming through of working age um, to support that society. And that's obviously a big trend. But the, <clears throat> the mistake that the generational mistake that people make is to blame it on the latest generation of young people. This is a, a long term trend which also points to the fact that it's really, really difficult to reverse. This is not about just let's sort out Gen Z, make them have kids, and <laughs> we will we'll be back on track. That is not how this is going to work, and it, it is a societal challenge. I'm talking with Bobby Duffy. He is the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. And uh, we have this email from Marilee in Cedar Rapids. And she says, my older brother was born in 1949, a time of happy days and sock hops and great promises. Meanwhile, I was born in 1960 with early memories of the civil rights struggle and the Vietnam War. I don't buy how large the baby boomer range is when they <laughs> when I see how they shaped me as and my brother in such divergent world views. So yes. that, that's an interesting point. And it's certainly one that um, kind of explodes some of our myths about how a generation is cohesive, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, that's a quite an age range between the siblings there. And that, that is a very good illustration of how um, at one end of the generational span, you're going to feel quite disconnected in many ways from the other end of the generational uh, span. So yes, a, a good live example of why you should look at these uh, classifications as an idea of broad change, societal change overall, rather than definitive views of vast swathes of the population. We were talking about uh, this idea of progress over time, each successive generation doing better than the generation before, which is not assured in, in this moment in time. Mm. 
there, uh, we've talked about how people have blamed millennials for, for ruining everything, but there has also been, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's stoked by the media or if it's mm -hmm. real or both, um, a little bit of both, this resentment of the boomer generation mm -hmm. uh, feeling like, uh, you know, they had things so good and we can never have things that good and, and they're continuing to live the good life and using up all the resources on our planet. Um, so let's, let's talk about that idea of resentment. Does that, does that bear out in what you've seen? Yeah, no, exactly. That's, uh, it's not all about, uh, accusing millennials of killing things. It is what you tend to find when you do searches, Google searches is that the autofill comes up with baby boomers ruining things. It's not so much killing them as they just ruined, uh, including everything in, right. in some people's, um, uh, estimations, but it's, um, Yes, no, this is a, a really, a really important um, distinction, and particularly when you're looking at the planet's resources. Um, and one of the most destructive generational stereotypes is that older people don't care about climate change. Um, and you see that in all sorts of ways, expressed in all sorts of ways. So when Greta Thunberg was made Person of the Year by Time magazine, um, she was called a uh, avatar in a generational battle between old and young um, and all sorts of other coverage sets climate up as young versus old uh, even the advertising you see around cop 26 it was a lot of showing kids um, encouraging older people to take climate more seriously but the trouble is when you look at the actual evidence of this there is hardly any gap between young and old now on concern about the climate and and on some of the actions or uh, uh, willingness to take actions on things like boycotting companies that are acting in socially or environmentally irresponsible ways, it's actually older people, gens, more Gen X and, and younger baby boomers who are, are more active in those types of things. So what we're doing is it's not just uh, a false representation, it's also quite a destructive stereotype, this one, because it gets it gives out the message to older people that the rest of their cohort don't really care about uh, climate and we know that that affects people's behaviors and views of themselves that if they keep getting the message and we've we've shown this in some of the polling if people keep getting the message that you don't care you're not doing anything then that tends to inform your own behavior and you actually start to live up to that but yeah. there is nothing in the evidence to say that there's, there's such a big split between young and old on climate um today and that's that's so that's really important we've got this destructive a false impression impression of division between the generations on climate when actually of all things that we need to act on climate is the one thing where we should be bringing people together not dividing them and it sounds like you're saying that that it could be a, a situation where this impression of division leads to division yes exactly i think we can talk ourselves into this because people do see this coverage it is it becomes it becomes quite insidious and you see pop stars referencing it and you see it in advertising and it gives this uh, sense that uh, older people are not part of the climate discussion when you look at the activists that uh, work on climate from uh, al gore to david attenborough in our country to the founders of um Extinction Rebellion, all gen Generation X uh, people. So it goes all the way from a 95, 96-year-old David Attenborough um, all the way down to Greta Thunberg. This is not on an activism scale. This is not an age-divided cause. 
One of the things that that concerns you is how our culture has changed to really silo us from other generations. We have changed how we live in some ways so that we interact with people of other generations less. Why does that concern you? Yeah, that's it. I mean, that is one of those real, true generation on generation changes that is missed in all this other noise of stereotypes and myths. We are living more separately than we have in human history between the age ranges. Uh, Younger people have sorted into cities, more urban locations, older people outside of those. And this is very true in the UK and the US. Uh, We've also got quite separate digital lives, which is a, a new dimension. Now, it's true that older people are more likely to be online than they were in the past, but they're in very different places to younger people. So you've got this physical separation of living in different places, and you've got this digital separation of interacting in different sorts of places in different sorts of ways. And that is really important because that's where um, the, the tendency to believe stereotypes about the other side grow because you don't have much direct contact with people. Um, and that's a, a sort of a, a negative uh, outcome of that. But we also miss out on lots of the positive outcomes of intergenerational interaction. One of the strongest bits of evidence that we have in uh, lots of the research studies is that both sides, both old and young, benefit from more interaction across the age ranges with older people having that sense of connection to the future and handing on uh, their knowledge and experience and and younger people benefiting from that. And that's shown again in study after study that the happiest people, the most fulfilled people are the people who maintain those intergenerational connections. But we are pushing ourselves apart in lots of ways, physically and digitally. We can learn a lot from each other. I am talking with Bobby Duffy, author of The Generation Myth, and there's more to come. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me is Bobby Duffy. He's the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. And uh, Bobby, before the break, we were talking about how we are are siloed from other Mm. generations. We don't tend to interact as much as we did historically with people who are in different age groups. One of the things, just really a lovely thing that you pointed out about the pandemic, though, is that we saw people of different generations sacrificing for people of other generations generations. And and I think, you know, at least we we observed that maybe a little more strongly early in the pandemic. But young people made a lot of really significant sacrifices to protect older people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you would say that the story of the pandemic overall has been incredible compliance with really extraordinary restrictions on lots of people's freedoms, particularly among young people when you would say that the risk from the disease is uh, much less for for that group. So, and and you've got to recognise that there are economic and social costs that 
younger people have borne as as part of that you know it's more it's more um sensitive at that stage of life both economically you've got to make your way in the world economically and you've got less resources to draw on but also socially um in terms of uh, social interaction being more important to your identity formation at those ages and uh, affecting your mental health more because you're just more used to that type of socialization that people missed out on so incredible uh, sacrifices and, and lots of great reasons for that and it's one of the reasons why um generational conflict is overblown um in people's discussions is we've got incredibly strong links up and down the generations through our families and our love uh, for our uh, families but we also have a, a more general sense of care for older people younger people have a general sense of care for older people and wanting to prioritize them because generally you'll find that uh, people really value the contribution that older people have made and we've, we've got a strong sense of um, the importance of contributing to society and that that should be reflected so there is still a lot of that love and respect um, for older generations and it is in contrast to a lot of the coverage that we had early on in the coverage there was lots of headlines about how a uh, there was a growing generational war brewing between um, the cohorts because because of these restrictions on young people this expectation that young people were going to kick back against those types of restrictions. And really, that isn't, that isn't what happened. There's a few small examples of that, but that wasn't representative of um, the norm. And uh, uh, most people are incredibly thoughtful and altruistic. Let's talk about mental health. You you just mentioned mm. it. And of course, the, the pandemic has been a, a very difficult time for mental health for a lot of individuals. We also have an idea that Gen Z, this youngest generation that's coming of age as adults, is suffering from more mental health problems than any other generation that has come before. Uh, tease that out for me a, a little bit. What do you see from the data? Yes, I mean, this is one of the sad generational realities. of This is a real generational difference in the US, UK and in uh, some other countries too where we have data, there does seem to be something of a step change in increasing common mental health disorders among these particular cohorts of younger people, Gen Z um, in particular, and then within Gen Z, particularly women, uh, women and um, young women and girls within uh, that uh, group. So this is a this is a real change, and this has definitely been exacerbated by the pandemic. There are some in, incredible figures in from UK data that is reflected in other countries too. Of a, it was already that eighteen to twenty four year old age group that was most likely to report common mental health disorders, but that doubled within that um the the early days of the pandemic so yes it has been uh exacerbated by that has exacerbated like quite a lot of covid and the pandemic generally is what the pandemic has done is exposed underlying vulnerabilities within society and you know, ruthlessly exposed them and made pushed us along a path that we were already on uh, including on these negative trends like uh increasing mental health uh, pressures 
I, I am really worried about that. I also do mm. wonder about the fact that, you know, when you look at the pre-war generations, uh, there had to be plenty of mental health issues that they struggled with thinking about all of the things that the members of those generations went through, but we didn't have the language to surround it Absolutely. either. So that, that has to influence the, the data. But one of the, the interesting things that you point out um, is actually with people taking their own lives that you looked at that longitudinally and, and through the different generations, and you found that actually Generation X, while it's not an epidemic among Generation X, but that's the generation most likely to die by suicide? Yes, yeah, certainly in the UK, and it's um, there's parallel kind of trends in the US. No, there's, this is one of those areas where you will often see claims in in newspaper headlines or news article headlines around a suicide epidemic among young people, um, which uh, from all of the data that we pulled together uh, for the book, that's just not true. Um, it does tend to be those uh, that particular cohort of Generation X. You can see the suicide rates tracking them through the age range as they get older. And I think that in some ways it reflects your earlier comment a little bit about the language and capabilities to talk about these things. I think Gen X are in a difficult kind of middle position again, where they didn't have quite the economic success of uh, the baby boomers, perhaps tougher economic times, but they also don't really have the emotional language or connection to um, the, the, the kind of therapies that you can get for uh, mental health problems not as open not as is it doesn't come as naturally to be open about their emotional state to some in that generation as perhaps later generations who've uh, been given more tools in that type of thing so they've got this kind of crushed slightly crushed in the middle um, uh, status between those two trends economic and more uh, social and uh, mental health uh, related so yes no that's a as a gen xer seeing that very clear pattern in the data it was quite a, it's a very sad thing to see and it, it does point well again what what i the reason i'm pointing out lots of these stereotypes um, around say a suicide epidemic among the young is they're dangerous because they point you in the wrong direction in terms of who you should be focusing your efforts on um uh, it shouldn't be it should be much more on that, uh, that middle-aged generation, trying to get them help and the sorts of support that they need and not be distracted by these um, uh, flawed uh, headlines. Right. Um, speaking of Gen Xers, Michael in Dubuque sent us a message. He says that it seems like generational events are also regional. I regularly do Facebook polls of my Gen X friends about the things they like or remember from the 1980s. When I asked about key events that they think shaped Gen X, I was fascinated that certain things like the farm crisis were huge among Iowans, while my friends who grew up in other parts of the country knew nothing about it. Um, and uh, that probably holds it for you, mm. Bobby, <laughs> as yes. well. Um, um, but I, I think that, that Michael brings up something interesting and something yeah. I, I talk to a lot of Gen Zers. Um, and, you know, right now the future can look very bleak and we are facing some very serious challenges right now. But 
I have tried to reassure them by saying, you know, uh, my grandparents lived through yeah. a world war and the Great Depression. When I was growing up, I thought that the odds of dying in a thermonuclear war were actually pretty good. You absolutely. probably did, too. Yeah, um, and, and so while our problems now may seem insurmountable, we have faced crises before. And tell me a little bit, because you write quite a bit about this idea that crises and decline mm. are inevitable and we sort of are, um, I don't know, building up this this culture of fear about mm. that. Give me your perspective from looking at, at the generational data. What can we take away from that? Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point is that sometimes some of the misleading generational analysis can give you this sense that we're on an inevitable path to decline, um, that there's nothing that we can do about it. And, uh, and that sort of comes from that view of, of stereotyping whole generations as you know, a particularly bad character, uh, whether that's materialistic or selfish or uh, whatever it is. It feels like we've got this sense of decline, but that's like a, that's a really common human bias is we always think things are going downhill um, and usually they're not in many ways. Lots of things are improving, even in, in times of crisis, um, things are still improving. But I think, I mean, the main thing that I take from it, from looking at generational trends, it forces you to look at the very long term. Um, so I was looking all the way back to the 1960s, uh, 1950s in some cases. And what, what that does for you looking at that long term is to look at those periods um, difficult periods that we've been through in the past and see that we did bounce back from them and progress was regained and we did get back on a better path uh, even in those uh, even from those very um, dark uh, dark times say in the 1970s or with the threats that we grew up with in um, the 1980s and we dealt with some of those things so I think really really important um, from the, that generational perspective gives you a sense that we still have agency and control over our future, not that we're on some inevitable path to crisis or decline. And, and I took a lot of confidence and optimism, really, from looking at these long-term trends to show how much we can change things if we put an effort into it. And it kind of gives you the same sort of sense of a post-COVID recovery and whether we really can build back better is we can build back better because we've seen that in the past, but it just needs that focus and uh, commitment to action. So not something we can be complacent about or assume is going mm. to happen. And you warn against that as well, because uh, in addition to slamming millennials and Gen <sighs> Z, a lot of us, and I have been guilty of this, I do adore my children and their friends. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of faith in those generations. And yes. and there is some of this language about, you know, that those generations are more tolerant. They are more open. Mm. They are, they could save us. You know, they care yeah. about the environment and, and all of these things. Those generalizations, those positive generalizations, can also have negative consequences, right? Yeah, I mean, again, such an important point because it's it's easy to swing between either it's the worst generation ever or these are our coming saviors and they're just so much better than we ever were and they will sort everything out. And you do see that theme come up. I mean, Barack Obama does this quite a lot in his autobiography and in his other speeches he talks about um, his enormous faith in the coming generations who believe in equality in a deeper way than their parents did or on on climate or on other types of things and 
And I, I think that is a risk, uh, to be honest, because there's nothing in the data that shows that there is a step change, that there is a break between generations on these types of things. It is much more gradual than that. And I think that does a couple of things. It, it first of all, puts enormous expectations on those coming generations. It's going to be uh, difficult to live up to. It also kicks the can down the road a little bit and says we don't have to worry about sorting this out. It's going to be the next generation who's going to come along and uh, make this happen. And then, But then the third thing it does as well is it does give this false sense of separation again between the generations that you've got, uh, you know, older generations who are more uh, less committed to these types of things and then younger generations who are and that naturally increases that sense of conflict or separation between the generations i don't i think that's um you can understand i'm sure all of those types of thinking is well intentioned to think we've got a brighter future and give people optimism and encouragement but it can have the opposite effects of actually thinking well there's nothing we can do or we're, it's not we're my responsibility, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. You sort of hand it on, or you feel even resentful to the next generation who are being talked up. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think you have to be careful about going too far in either direction on uh, how you caricature uh, these very large proportions of the population. We just have two minutes left, and and a couple of your main takeaways that we should interact more with uh, the other members mm-hmm. of other generations, stereotype a lot less. But you also think that we need to do a better job focusing on the future. So in, in just two mm. minutes, tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, I think one of our, the biggest problems that we have, one of our biggest problems that we have is like the chronic short-termism in uh, our politics and economics and and one of the uh, clearest things from uh, the uh, analysis is that that concern for the future and uh, the coming um, generations that that uh, are, are going to be following as our kids and and other people's kids and that that kind of um, intergenerational connection focusing on what brings us together across the generations is hugely important to us as individuals it's uh, it connects us to our kids but it connects us to a stronger sense of our own uh, legacy and i think particularly in covid and post covid we do have a chance now to try to break this sense of short term reactions in our politics and economics and actually try to build a bigger vision for a longer term uh, future. Uh, so I think we've got, we got an opportunity from this crisis, which is to think about the big challenges that faces, which include climate, but also inequality and progress more, more generally across societies. Can we actually come up with those types of new deals that connect us across generations? Because the types of challenges we face are long-term challenges. They're not short-term fixies. And breaking ourselves out of that through connecting the generations and our sense of uh, legacy uh, for the future. That, I think, is a, is a really important prize that we, we have a little window here to think about differently. Well, I hope we do. Bobby, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Bobby Duffy is the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. He is also a professor of public policy and director of the Policy Institute at King's College, London. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebby, and let's go out with The Who. Don't you all fail with me. 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 Don't you all fail with me.
try to dig what we all s s say. I'm not trying to cause a big s s sensation. I'm just talking about my generation.